Welcome to the Path to Lawyer Wellbeing podcast, uh, where we talk to cool people doing awesome work in the lawyer wellbeing space. And my name is Chris Newville, and I'm joined by my co-host, Bree Buchanan. Hi, everybody. And uh, we are, again, super excited about the opportunity to have one of the pioneers in the lawyer wellbeing space join us uh, today as our guest, uh, Patrick Krill. Uh, Patrick is, uh, you know, somebody who really is, was, was, is, has been influential in his work on the science side to lay the foundation for what has become a, a vibrant movement and a discussion in the legal, in the legal profession about the current state of uh, lawyer well-being. So let me, let me kick it to, uh, to Bree to introduce Patrick and get us going uh, in, in our, on our questions. Thanks, Chris. And yeah, I think we really are um, so honored to have Patrick here today. And I have a little disclosure. Patrick and I work together. He's uh, my boss with Krill Strategies. But everything I say, none of this I'm saying to just sort of flatter you, Patrick. All of this is absolutely true. Oh, right. Absolutely. <laughs> um, but some of the words that come to my mind, um, Chris has already tapped on it, pioneer, a pioneer in the, in the research around substance abuse and mental health issues in the legal profession, because it was Patrick's fabulous research that was published in 2016 that really kicked all of this off. And we're going to talk about that research a little bit and also talk about what he's been doing since then in regards to updating and expanding upon that research. Um, he's also what I think of as a true thought leader, and sometimes I tease him of being our guru um, around these issues in the legal profession, uh, because he spends all of his time reading, researching, talking to others, um, and really is, truly is a thought leader on this. He's authored over 70 articles, including for law.com, CNN, uh, been in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, um, and on NPR. So we really are uh, very lucky to have Patrick today. And so, Patrick, um, thanks for being here. Thank you, Bree, and thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure to be with you both. So I'm going to start off with a question that we're really trying to ask everybody that gets on the, comes on the podcast for us to get an idea about, a little bit about the person themselves. So um, what brought you to the lawyer well-being movement? Um, and so what in your life, it really drives your passion for this work? Yeah, so it's, it's a great question. And I think to really answer that meaningfully, I have to go back to before my work in the, in the lawyer well-being space and to really kind of talk a little bit about my career trajectory generally. I was an attorney. I was someone who went to law school. And then as I was getting ready to wrap up law school, made the decision to go on for a further degree to get an LLM in international law. And I approached the legal profession with a lot of enthusiasm and with a lot of plans about the type of law that I wanted to practice. Um, and then what I was met with was a reality that was very discordant with what I had expected. Um, I'm a first generation lawyer in my family. I didn't have a lot of experience with or exposure to what being a lawyer actually meant. So I had all these preconceptions and then I got into the field, and while it was fine, it was pretty clear to me right off the bat that once I got out of the academic realm, once I got out of the classroom setting and stopped studying about law and had to do the work, it really didn't, it wasn't a good fit for me, and I didn't particularly enjoy it. And the idea of billing my time in six-minute increments really was, 
you know, I just couldn't do it. It was, it was right. in water, you know, in terms of my personality. Uh, but nonetheless, I did practice law for a number of years and I, I worked in a number of different roles. Uh, prior to coming to the realization that this wasn't long-term sustainable for me. It just, it didn't, it didn't get me out of bed in the morning, right? right. And we always ask people is, you know, what gets you out of bed in the morning? And it wasn't being an attorney, um, despite my, my best intentions, really. I'm fascinated by the law, and I still think about and read about the law all the time, but the mechanics of practicing law weren't for me. I also had my own experience overcoming addiction uh, really early out of the gate. Uh, you know, in the first couple of years of the legal profession, my, my practice, I should say. And so I had exposure to and experience with what it takes to, to sort of overcome a behavioral health problem. And that experience and that exposure to that world introduced me to this idea of counseling, right? And so I knew what a mental health counselor was. I knew what an addiction counselor was. And so when it came time for me to reevaluate and think, do I want to do this long term? Um, I knew that there was a field that seemed a little bit more interesting to me and seemed a little bit more aligned with my personality and, and just sort of intrinsically who I am. And so I went back to school to become an addiction counselor. And that ultimately translated into my work with lawyers specifically. I became the director of a treatment program for lawyers, judges, and law students at the Hazel and Betty Ford Foundation. Um, so that's it's kind of a long rambling answer, but I I think you have to understand kind of the bigger picture view. Absolutely, yeah. How I even got into the mental health space, let alone sort of the lawyer-specific mental health space. Right. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. I mean, there's typically is a personal story that brings us to this work. And I think that what you just said, Patrick, about um, really ha not having the best vocational fit uh, yes. Once you get into it and start seeing what it's like day to day, I hear that as a common refrain from lawyers who are really struggling. So, yeah, thanks. Listen, I want to share, get you to share a little bit about the lawyer study that was done now four years ago um, that you did. I think you started while you were still director of the legal professionals program at Hazelden. Um, and that has proved to be the, the basis for really the lawyer well-being movement. Um, so I'm wondering, what do you think is the most important information that came out of that study now that you can look back over the past four years? Uh, it, it's hard to say. Uh, what the, I, I would have a hard time identifying one thing or even two things as being the most important takeaways from that study. I think the most important result, <clears throat> excuse me, result of that study has been its overall impact, right? The, to the the extent to which it raised awareness about the nature and the scope of the challenges we face, it provided much needed data to back what a lot of us who were working in the lawyer mental health space in, in a clinical or other capacity knew. We knew lawyers were unwell and were struggling disproportionately to other populations, but we didn't really have good data to back, to back up our argument. Um, and so this study provided that and it really opened the door to a much needed and overdue conversation around mental health and well-being in the legal profession. Um, and so I think it was really more the impact than any one precise piece of the study. I will say one of the things that surprised me the most uh, was that it was younger lawyers who were the most depressed and struggling with uh, or exhibiting the most signs of problem drinking. 
the drinking piece you can kind of get, right? Think about being where people drink excessively and it doesn't have as much of an impact on them. Uh, but we were surprised about the mental health piece uh, as well, simply because that wasn't the profile of who was showing up in treatment programs or right. going to the lawyer's assistance program or who was getting disbarred because of their mental health or, or substance use problems. So we kind of went into that research with a preconceived notion of who the most at-risk population was. Patrick, how, how much of that... Um... How much of that was, do you think, driven by the expectations gap between, you know, it's the same type of expectations gap that you had, which was, this is what I thought the law was going to be like, this is what the law was actually like, and, and, uh, and how that's affecting, I think, the, the most recent generation of graduates kind of coming out of law school. Yeah, it's such a, such a great point, Chris. I think that's a profound problem. Uh, I think you have a lot of people coming out of law school and finding themselves sort of adrift in a profession that doesn't potentially resonate with them, that is more overwhelming than they had anticipated, assuming they're able to get a job, right? Yeah. And they're able to get a job that meets their needs and provides some opportunity. But then they get into it and they say, whoa, <laughs> this is not what I signed up for. Or, and this is, you know, I think, putting the spotlight a little bit on the law school experience, it's not what they were prepared for. Mm. And so there, there are these mismatched expectations and what that can result in, I think you're right. I mean, I think what you're getting at is, does that play into the high levels of distress among young lawyers? And how yeah. could it not? I mean, how could it not? If I had done that survey, you know, 20 years ago when I was coming into the profession, I would have, you know, been in, I would have been scoring off the chart on all of those assessments. Yeah. I mean, you can see a scenario where you kind of go down a path, you feel like you're too far down that path you know, the, the, it's probably more rare for someone to make a pivot like you did to say, this isn't for me, I'm going to go and, 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 and pursue my studies in an area that then interconnects kind of the behavioral health side with, with, with the law side, right? And, and I, you know, we know how much student debt and other factors play into kind no of the doubt. notion of how, how do I get out of this? And then that spirals into a set of conditions that just generally move toward uh, more unhealthiness for uh, for that particular community. Yep, I, I agree. And I'm sure Bree has some, some thoughts about that as well with her background in, in vocational discernment, right? How do we bridge that gap? And how do we make some progress there? Because we, we need to. I don't know if it's modifying law school curricula or just you know more truth in advertising about <laughs> the legal profession is. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. It makes me think about Larry Krieger's research, what makes lawyers happy, you know, and the idea of, of even thinking about it's the extrinsic things, the, the power, the prestige, et cetera, that draws us um, to the practice of law. But what we know the now that what makes us happy are more internal factors of meaning. And, and that's just not made known to people who are contemplating going to law school or people that are there. It's kind of like something you have to trip over <laughs> and fall down right. to figure out. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's, uh, you know, Patrick, I think it's fair to say that the, the lawyer well-being movement likely doesn't get ignited without the study itself. Right. Because we are ultimately an evidentiary based right profession and we needed the data, I think, to ultimately launch the discussion. Talk, talk to us about kind of that notion of, you know, how important that was to kickstart the national discussion 
uh, obviously followed by the report uh, subsequent to that, but, but how important was to kind of lay the foundation? I think it was incredibly important. And I, I, I think you're right. We wouldn't be where we are with this movement had we not had that predicate, right, of the data and had that not been um, sort of something that caught the profession's attention. In addition to, you know, the, the data and the, the value of that itself, it was also a multi-jurisdictional study, right? So we had 16, 17, 18 different bar associations from around the country participating in this survey and, and participating in this research, recognizing the value. So you sort of saw some seeds of, of the interest being planted there, right? You had all these various stakeholders, but you also had, and this goes back to my sort of overarching strategy when I was conceptualizing this study, how you had the ABA and Hazel and Betty Ford, two large stakeholders with a lot of credibility uh, you know, in their respective spheres coming together to conduct this research. And I think that was an important piece of the puzzle as well. This wasn't something that could just be ignored, right? You have all these bar associations from around the country participating You have the ABA, you have Hazel and Betty Ford putting their names behind this project. And I think that allowed it to get the attention that it did and to really open the door for this conversation. And, you know, something I'd be really interested in hearing both of your perspectives on is looking back on it. I have a sense that in a way we were almost pushing on an open door. And what I mean by that is there was an appetite to have this discussion. People knew that there was a problem, but it was so it was sort of under the surface, right? And there wasn't, there wasn't an easy way to bring this up or there, there weren't a lot of pathways into this conversation. But then once you got that ball rolling, you know, people are basically acknowledging, yeah, we've got issues here. Finally, can we talk about this? And at least that's my perspective kind of looking back over the last five years. Yeah, and I think that societally, outside of law, more and more people were talking about these issues. Um, yeah. So law, a conservative industry, comes up last. But then you have younger people who are coming in and onboarding into the legal profession, and, and there's just not the stigma that mm. around these issues about depression, anxiety, or even a substance abuse problem um, that there used to be. And so you're starting to get a shift. And I think once we got that data, it it opened up the door, um, which you're, as you're saying was already open. And then the other thing that I found going around the country talking, inevitably pe people who have been practicing law, even for just a little bit, know someone who has taken his or her own life. And once yeah. that has crossed uh, your path, it, it really kind of shakes you. And it's not something that you forget about. And we always want to know, well, what could have been done differently? And so I think that this is a manifestation of that too. Yeah. And at the risk of, I don't want to dominate the conversation, but I do want to say something to, to both of you, just share something with you that hasn't really received a lot of discussion was that because it wasn't published with that study where we had 15,000 responses, there was the opportunity for people to submit comments at the end, right? There was basically like, do you have comments? And we compiled all of those and I have a binder of them sitting on my bookshelf. We weren't able to publish them the format didn't lend itself to that, but overwhelmingly, I mean, with thousands and thousands of comments, overwhelmingly, they reflected a theme of, this is a huge problem in the profession. We're glad you're conducting this research. Maybe that's where I began to develop this notion that people want to have this conversation, right? People recognize that people around them are not well and that people around them are struggling and they feel like they're in a, they're in a profession that's tone deaf to it. 
Uh, mm -hmm. But overwhelmingly, that's what the comments reflected. People saying, this is a big deal. This, wow. is, this is a needed endeavor. Yeah. So I know that that research was so important, but there were other questions that you wanted to ask. And so could you tell us a little bit about the most current research you're involved in? Yeah, I'm actually really excited about this. We, um, along with a colleague at the University of Minnesota Medical School, I designed a new survey that we administered to lawyers in California and the DC bar. Uh, so we partnered with the California Lawyers Association and the DC bar uh, to conduct new research, sort of bi-coastal research. And, you know, I had a couple of aims for this project. One, we did want it to be a random sample. So it would meet sort of that gold standard for research. Uh, the 2016 study, while I feel very certain that those numbers were representative of what was happening in the profession, it wasn't a truly random sample. Uh, so it didn't, you know, sort of meet that gold standard for data. Um, so I did want to have a random sample, but I also wanted to explore the why, right? Not just the prevalence, not how many lawyers are meeting criteria for depression or a substance use disorder, but why? And to ask questions that could sort of get at lawyer motivation, lawyer personality, and then, and then look at those responses in relationship to their mental health. So we were originally supposed to launch that research project right around the time and I mean, what a year we're all living through, right around the time when the pandemic was hitting, right? And, and the survey was supposed to go out, I think the same week that California announced stay at home orders. So, you know, obviously the California Lawyers Association said we need to pause and we agreed with that. And what that gave us the opportunity to do was to, to sort of revamp the survey and to modify some questions to actually measure the impact of COVID-19 and quarantines and all of that on lawyer mental health. It was ultimately disseminated. Uh, we finished data collection about a month ago and we're analyzing the data, getting ready to, to write up the manuscript. And basically what I can tell you, I can't talk about the data in any sort of precise way at this point prior to publication. But what I can tell you is that the problems are real. There was nothing anomalous about that 2016 study. Um, and in some respects, they appear to be getting worse. Um, and also the, the impact of COVID-19 has been material. It's been mm. real. I mean, mm. people are feeling this as it relates to their mental health and their substance use. Beyond that though, we're going to have some really interesting insights to share about the why piece, right? Why are lawyers so likely to experience depression, for example? Right. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited about it, really grateful to the DC bar and the California Lawyers Association. Uh, they helped us get a, a big data set. We had really robust participation in a, in a random sample. So uh, it's, it'll be useful, useful data for the profession. Do you have a sense of when it might be published? <laughs> yeah, well, that's the sort of million dollar question. Our goal is to have it submitted to a journal by the end of September. Um, then it's that sort of out of your hands, right? It's right. journal's own publication schedule. Best case scenario, it will it'll be published in December, um, but that could easily go into January of next year, February. I mean, just given every all of the delays that everything seems to be experiencing and all the uncertainty, um, but we're moving pretty expeditiously. We're we're moving about as quickly as you can with a with a study of this size and nature. Patrick, how, how, how much do you think that the research 
side of well-being is is important to the to the to the discussion, right? Because we, we really don't have a lot of good. I mean, we have we have research, right? We have some groundbreaking studies. We had yours, right? We had the we had the law student one. We have your follow-up here, but it still seems like there's a there's kind of a lack of a emphasis on the kind of the research side as we think about you know the the well-being movement. I just love for your insights into you know what, what's the next generation of research as you think kind of on the on the horizon yeah i think personally research is a very important piece of the puzzle and that's not just because i'm involved in it it's because you have to understand the dimensions of the challenges that you're trying to address right you can't just be spitballing about what what's going on we're also a profession that's trained to weigh and evaluate evidence and, mm. and lawyers are you know prone to scrutinize things and, and want to know, is that, is that backed by data, right? Is that, is that science driven? And so I think if you want to persuade people that there needs to be a change, you do have to back up your argument. Um, in addition to, to people like us being able to understand the nature of the, of the challenges. So I think it's vitally important in terms of, you know, next generation or ongoing, I think further exploration of what, causes the problems, which is probably going to be further exploration of the lawyer personality beyond, you know, really important work like Krieger and Sheldon's work um, and other uh, research that exists. Understand that a little bit better. I think we also really need to get at the disconnect that we started by talking about, right? That, that expectation gap or the mismatched expectations between pe what people think they're getting with a career in the law and what they end up getting. Because you know, that's gotta be a big piece of the equation as to why many people find themselves, to put it charitably, less than satisfied. Yeah, yeah. and if we have a profession of folks who are less than satisfied, that doesn't bode well uh, to, to the profession generally. No, right, so, exactly. Let's pivot real quickly before we take a break. And, and I, I, you know, I'd love to hear your perspective. Each one of us comes at this from a different angle, the well-being, you know, Brie obviously originating from the lawyer assistance programming side. I, I spent a lot of time thinking about small firms and solo practitioners and preventing malpractice claims, right? And, and a lot of your focus professionally has been on big law and more than anybody else, you probably have your, your, your finger on the pulse of, of how big law is adapting to uh, the new emphasis on well-being. And I, I just love to hear your perspectives on what you're seeing out there. And do you think big law is paying attention? Because oftentimes I think big law, you know, if they embrace it, it has a trickle-down effect to the totality of the profession. So I'd love to love to hear your perspective on on big law and the interconnectedness to uh, to well-being. Yeah, so it's a it's a, an important area to dis uh, of discussion. I think you're right that often big law does have the ability to sort of set the pace. They're almost like the pace car for the profession. They have an outsized influence on the profession, mm -hmm. despite the fact that they employ a, a minority of practicing lawyers, right? Um, I would say if you compare where we were four years ago, big law has made a lot of progress, right? It started with this sort of overdue recognition and acknowledgement that this is a real problem. We have an issue that we need to get our arms around. Uh, five years ago, there was profound and widespread institutional denial of the scope of the problem, right? 
maybe if it wasn't denial, it was simply a lack of awareness. You can characterize it however you want. Um, but the reality is that these issues were not being dealt with in a, in a deliberate way. They weren't even really being acknowledged, despite the fact that it tends to be a pressure cooker environment. Uh, it tends to be one of the most intense professional environments out there. Um, and now what you have is widespread acknowledgement that these problems are real, widespread acknowledgement that their competitors are taking steps to try and ameliorate the problems or at least mitigate the problems. Um, and, and so there's, there's momentum, there's real momentum that has developed. All of that said, uh, there's a fundamental tension between the business model of big law, uh, which again, tends to be really high expectations, a, a pressure cooker environment, a lot of billable requirements and other demands. There's a tension between that model and you know, being able to take care of yourself the way that you might want to. Um, and having any sense of balance in your life. And so I think to, to try and resolve that tension is going to continue to necessitate incremental efforts that are sustained over time. It's not going to be an over the overnight sort of fix. Um, it's, it's going to take a long time. And that said, many firms are making a good faith effort, right? They're trying. They're, they're trying to bridge that gap incrementally where they can. Uh, one of the problems with incremental progress, especially in an environment when so many people, where so many people are not satisfied, is that it takes patience, right? You, and so you'll have some people in those environments or some people uh, sort of external to big law commenting on big law saying, this is all window dressing, right? All of these changes that they're making don't really get at the heart of the matter. But the reality is you have to start somewhere and you have to start taking steps. And as long as those steps, like I said, are sustained and you know, they're, they continue to move in the right direction over time, I think the model can be adjusted to the point where people experience greater levels of personal well-being. And to some degree, that's already happening. Yeah. And I know that all three of us are being author, co-authors of the task force report, we can remember all the thought that went into how we make a good argument to the legal profession for this culture change. And there was like uh, the financial, it's, it's good for business. Um, it uh, relates to our ethical obligations and then the humanitarian, the, it's the right thing to do. Which of these things, which of those three do you think are motivating the, the, the firms and the people in the firms that you're dealing with? Are those arguments um, resonating? I honestly, I maybe I just have uh, the good fortune of working with some really amazing firms, but my experience has been that all three resonate, right? I mean, you tend to have really good people leading these organizations, and they it's it's not like they're unfeeling individuals, um, but you know they they have to operate within the bounds of their of their business model. All three points resonate. The one that is probably sort of driving the progress the most is the financial, right? Uh, but it's not necessarily financial the, the way I think that we were contemplating it in the task force where, you know, good mental health translates into less expenditure and better performance and all of that. It's financial in the sense of wanting to sort of present a firm culture that attracts and retains the best lawyers, right? So it's, 
it's almost kind of a hybrid rationale. It certainly that if you if you boil that down, that does you know firms want to attract and retain the best talent so that they ultimately perform better financially. Um, but you know it's it's not it's not the precise calculation of how many specific dollars they're going to save by having fewer depressed lawyers. If that makes sense. Mm. You bet. You bet. And does I, that make sense the way I'm sort of explaining yeah, that? Yeah, and and I, one thing that I hear that really resonates uh, when I speak is the issue around the recruitment and retention. Yeah, that's a big deal. And getting back to talking about those younger lawyers that we were talking about at the very beginning, they expect um, that they're going to work for somebody who has an interest in them personally, that cares about them as a human being. And that's just, that's just what's out there and what they're dealing with, with the new folks. So. Yeah, yeah. It certainly, certainly feels like the talent acquisition side, you know, where these firms are competing for the best and brightest talent coming out of the law schools. But many of those students are coming in with a different mindset from a work life balance. Right. And that, that, that has the potential to be a real game changer. It's probably, probably has you more optimistic thinking ahead to the future in terms of the generational change that will ultimately evolve in, in big law. Yeah, absolutely. I, I do think that the younger generation of attorneys, um, assuming that their priorities aren't kind of co-opted by the machine, if you will, right? Assuming that they maintain that level of desire to have a different work-life experience and, and as long as they continue to prioritize well-being, then yes, I, I think that they can be a driver of real transformational change and sustained change in the profession. Um, as long as they don't kind of get said, kind of co-opted or swept away by the current that exists. And uh, I, I don't see any evidence that they will. I'm just offering that as one potential caveat, uh, right? Does the, does the prevailing system ultimately prevail? Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, hey, let's take a quick break. Uh, Patrick, this has been a fascinating conversation. I love, uh, I, I love the, the kind of, again, your, your thought leadership in this space and your, your experience, your, your ability to kind of see the macro trends, I think is really critical uh, as we kind of think about the well-being movement on the, on the horizon. Let's take a quick break and we'll come back. Your law firm is worth protecting. And so is your time. Alps has the quickest online application for legal malpractice insurance out there. Apply, see rates, and find coverage, all in about 20 minutes. Being a lawyer is hard. Our new online app is easy. Apply now at applyonline.alpsnet.com. So Patrick, continuing along the line of uh, what is happening in big law around this whole lawyer well-being movement, there is a pledge. Uh, it's the well-being pledge for legal employers, um, and that was uh, is being conducted by the American Bar Association, specifically the Commission on Lawyers Assistance Programs. But um, you really were the instigator of that. And so can you talk a little bit about why you thought that was so important and how that project's going right now? Yeah, so I'd be happy to. I, I'm really, really gratified with how the pledge has turned out, especially given how it sort of began. And what I mean by that is I first proposed the idea of a pledge campaign to ask employers 
to publicly state a commitment to various principles around well-being back in, I want to say 2015, uh, prior to the study. Um, and at the time I proposed that and sort of had this idea, the profession was in a different place. This conversation wasn't really happening or resonating in the profession. And so that idea gained no traction. And so when I had the opportunity to present it again in 2018 under the auspices of the ABA uh, working group to advance lawyer well-being, the group liked it and we ran with it and we, and we launched it in September of 2018, starting with 12 law firms, right? And those were basically firms that I or others in the working group had a relationship with. And we sort of approached them and said, would you like to put your name behind this campaign and help us generate momentum and interest to hopefully change the culture of the, of the profession. So we started with 12, I would say, very courageous law firms. And we're now up to uh, close to 200 organizations. That's that right. Pledge, uh, which is really, really remarkable. We still have a lot of room to grow and a lot of stakeholders that we want to get on board. Uh, but it has already, in my view, amounted to a vehicle for cultural change. And that was the idea from the beginning. We need a a vehicle for cultural change, something that provides concrete, tangible guidance about steps that organizations can take to reduce the impact and prevalence of mental health and substance use problems. And so I really couldn't be more pleased by, by how well it's going. I'll say that simply signing a pledge and saying we're going to do X, Y, and Z in and of itself is meaningless unless the organization follows through. And it's not hard to imagine why some organizations may want to sign on just sort of for PR reasons or uh, peer pressure, whatever. But we just finished uh, evaluating. We, we circulated commitment forms, recommitment forms after organizations had been signatories for a year. And we're just finishing evaluating all of those responses. And the overwhelming majority of signatories are really taking meaningful steps. I mean, they're, great they're, news. Yeah. They, they, they're trying to live up to that commitment that they made. Yeah, wonderful. Can you talk just for a minute? Because my thought is there may be some people who are listening who may be interested in getting involved in that pledge. And so it's for legal employers. It's not just big law, right? Yes, exactly. So we our associations, we have an overwhelming number of big law firms who have signed on. Um, but, but bar associations, law schools, corporate legal departments, mm -hmm. sector legal employers, right? A, you know, a, a large public defender's office, a state's attorney's office, the Department of Justice, right? If anyone from the DOJ is listening, we want you to take the pledge. There are lots of other stakeholders that it would be great to, to get on board because this is about changing the culture of the profession, not the culture of big law firms. Right. Right. And so, you know, I also just, Chris, what do you think about the pledge as being someone who works in day-to-day and -day risk management for law firms? Do you see it as a, a helpful tool? Yeah, I think, you know, again, it, 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 what, we're, what we're trying to do is get the discussion going amongst partners in any size of a firm or in any type of a legal employer environment. And, and so the more that those conversations are being had, I think that the more that you're seeing people you know, kind of see, you know, I, I know from our perspective, you know, we believe that happier, healthier lawyers ultimately lead to fewer claims, right? And so the, 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 the pledge, I think, has been really a catalyst um, for what I would love to see is the, you know, again, 
200 signatories to become 1,000 signatories to become 2,000 signatories because I think we continue to want to be able to see this filter down. If, if, the, if big law is the pace setter, how do we continue to see small law, solo practitioners, and others come into it? And then also a kind of a geographic representation. I know one of my aspirations is, is to have pledge signers in every state in the country, right? So that it, it is really a, a, a catalyst for the national discussion, the national movement, and people saying, I'm in, right? We, we, we need people to say, I'm in, because I think that that is going to be critical to the uh, success of our, of our ultimate goal, which is the culture shift. I think that's right. And when we get to that point of having a really wide base of buy-in and a wide base of participation in, for example, the pledge, I mean, that's when you start to see this idea of well-being really associated with the idea of being a lawyer, right? It becomes part of the notion of what a career in the legal profession uh, involves. And, and part of that will ideally one day be a focus on taking care of yourself. Yeah. Let, let's shift here uh, quickly. And, and, you know, I know that, again, this, this we'd, we'd be remiss to not talk for a few minutes with you, Patrick, about the, the impacts of the pandemic. Um, and, and, you know, you, you, you referenced it a little bit in, in some of your current research and, and just your, your thoughts on, on the effect of the pandemic, uh, you know, on, on lawyers, the legal community, substance abuse, mental health. Um, you know, it's, it's, you know, we're seeing it amongst our policy. It's a tough time out there. Yeah. Yeah. It's an extraordinarily tough time, I think, for anyone in society. Uh, different people have been experiencing the events of 2020 differently, right? Um, and that's one thing that I think is important to recognize that although we, we tend to say we're kind of all in this together, that's true, but also really not true. Uh, we're in sort of in the same storm, but we're not all in the same boat. And that's really evident in some work environments where you might have some people who this has amounted to a significant inconvenience for them. And maybe they're kind of riding it out from their beach house or, or whatever. And then you have other people who are in a 700 square foot apartment and they're, they've been traumatized by what's been going on over the course of the last four to five months. And so the, that, that experience has not been uh, <clears throat> universal. All of that said, I'm hearing on a daily basis at this point from people, from organizations, from firms who are saying, our people are struggling. Right. I've had four or five emails. Today's a Wednesday. I've had four or five emails since Monday on that point. Right. Saying, can we talk? We need some. We need to talk to you about what's going on. Some of the some of the trends we're seeing. Mm. And so, it's it's real, and it's important to recognize. Going back to the data that we were all discussing earlier, um, the legal profession was starting off on shakier ground as it relates to our mental health and substance use risk. We already had higher levels of those problems and now the pandemic has come along and not only the pandemic, the stay at home orders, the economic uncertainty, the racial tension that's been roiling the country. I mean, there's a lot happening in 2020 um, that has, has really pushed some people to the brink or in some cases, unfortunately, over the brink. What are you telling these folks when they call to, to the extent you can share that? What is some general advice? Well, it, almost always these conversations involve letting them know that what they're experiencing internally in their organization is not anomalous, 
right? So helping them understand the dimensions of what's happening throughout the country and around the world um, and sort of normalizing that experience. But also, I think it's really important for organizations to be mindful of how they're communicating with their people around this and how they're trying to make accommodations and adjustments to culture and expectations uh, where possible, right? Um, I wrote a column several months ago, I think back in March, about this phenomenon uh, essentially known as emotional dissonance, right? Which is the disparity between how we feel inside and how we feel we have to present in order to conform, to conform with workplace expectations or you know, other expectations of us. And right now, for many people, that level of emotional dissonance is quite high because they're a mess inside and they're really struggling to hold it together or they're completely burnt out and they're completely frazzled, but they're a lawyer. And th there's a very real set expectation for how they present themselves and, and how they comport themselves. And so I think it's important for organizations and employers to recognize that and to try to move the needle a little bit and, and show some flexibility around those expectations because the higher that level of emotional dissonance, the greater the risk of burnout, unwanted turnover, all sorts of problem, problematic outcomes. Hmm. Patrick, let's spend, let's spend our last couple of minutes kind of talking about just, you know, your your motivations, right? You you are you know, somebody again, first generation uh, lawyer. Um, you know, in, in many respects, you're both nudging and blowing us. You know, opening up new doors in a in a national discussion. You know, I, I've 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 called you at times a, a the fire alarm puller, which is which means that you're you're kind of you know shining the light on some of the problems of our profession, which which I, I know that it's motivated by a desire to drive it in the right direction. Um, and to return it to uh, a level of professional satisfaction that we can all be proud of and excited about, right? And, and I'm just kind of, you know, curious on what's it like to, to, to be in your role, to be talking to lawyers about the challenges and, and also be, I, I know that you are amongst, uh, in, in our community, one of the primary solution drivers. You know, you're always thinking about how do we move it forward, right? So as we think about this culture shift, I, I just love your perspective on uh, both raising the alarm on one side, but yet uh, uh, putting the fire out and, 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 and looking for a, a bluer sky, a, a better horizon in the future. Yeah, well, they're both, I think, equally important. I, I think the, the fire alarm has been raised at this point. It's a great question, Chris. Thank you, I should say, for, for asking that, because I think it really gets at two equally important things. We needed to raise awareness. We needed to get this conversation going. And I think on an ongoing basis, we will need to keep that level of buy-in and that level of awareness raised. So, you know, that's one of the reasons why I'm conducting new research. We can't rely on research from 2016 in perpetuity, right? We need current data to continually drive the conversation. Um, but beyond that, it's, it's, it's only if so much utility, if you raise awareness and then don't have any next steps outlined talk about how do we get to a better place, right? It's a problem and it's a solution. And now we've identified the problem and we all have to be focused on developing good solutions. I love problem solving, right? Not in the math sense, I'm, I'm terrible at math, but, but just kind of in a conceptual sense, it's always what I've enjoyed is trying to figure out problems and solutions. So that piece does really motivate me and I enjoy that. 
I like wrestling with concepts and theories and, and testing different propositions and, and sort of figuring out what might work. Um, so that's a really important piece. I, you know, I've got to say, I'm, I appreciate you saying that I'm sort of driving some efforts here, but this is a team effort, right? And, and both of you and all of our other wonderful colleagues on the National Task Force and other people around the profession who are contributing to this cause, we're all kind of rowing in the same direction and, and contributing where we can to, to turn the ship. Um, I don't know how many different lame metaphors I can <laughs> but, but you know, it's, it's certainly not just me and, and we really are doing this, really are doing this together. Um, but I'm, I'm grateful. I experience a lot of gratitude for the opportunities that I've had in my life to allow me to be doing this work. And most days, you know, it's, it's good to get out of bed and it's good to get up and, you know, do what I have to do that day. If, 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 if the goal is the culture shift, I am curious on what your greatest fear is as we kind of look ahead. You know, that's a, you've stumped me because I don't, I don't know what this says about my personality, but I don't spend a lot of time thinking about that. I don't know that I have one. I know that with the task force, when we first started, our greatest fear is that nobody would pay attention or we'd yeah. write this report and it would sit on a bookshelf. Yeah. So that's and, not happening. And that's not happening. And my greatest fear is always, you know, I've, I've been around the legal profession for 20 years now and you see issues rise to the level of national discussion and oftentimes then kind of peter out, right? And, and I, I think we collectively, I think we're both trying to build the infrastructure and the sustainability of the movement and, and the architecture of the movement so that it continues to be front and center, you know, kind of a front burner issue. Um, I, think, I feel like we've done a pretty good job thus far, but it's, it, boy, once we kind of let our guard down, uh, it, you know, we, we could lose momentum and we can't lose momentum. Well, I couldn't agree more fully. Um, I have no intention of letting that happen for, you know, for my part. Uh, that's, it's, that would be fully antithetical to sort of who I am at my core, right? So I'm going to, to keep pushing this as, as long and as hard as I can. And knowing that there are so many other people invested in this process, I think we'll probably overcome some of the, what may have been long odds at the beginning about whether you can really achieve a cultural change in the legal profession. I think we're getting there and we will ultimately get there. And Patrick, you truly are making the profession a better one. So thank you. Well, that's kind, Bree. Thank you. Yeah, it, it's, it's been awesome. And again, we talked about awesome people doing great things. Uh, you're definitely in that camp. And, and Patrick, we, we thank you so much for being on the podcast and, and being one of our first guests. That was great. Really good to chat with you both. And I hope this podcast is just a tremendous success as I'm sure it will be. Awesome. Well, everyone be well out there and uh, we'll, be, we'll be coming back with a, with a podcast in a couple of weeks. Thank you. Thanks. Bye, everybody.